my Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And not too long ago, Girl Next Gondor and the Red Book did a collaborative video where they discussed Melkor for about an hour. And there's plenty to talk about with Melkor, and some of the stuff they talked about sparked an idea in my head. Like, most of the stuff they talked about I already knew, but as usual, when you get two people talking about something, and you bring up different things in different contexts, it raises other ideas. And specifically, this was the idea of how Sauron kind of, you know, grew over time into this lieutenant who's doing a lot of the hard work behind the scenes for Morgoth, and how in some weird ways he's actually parallel to Manwe. And so what I want to kind of do here is detail a little bit of the history of the development of Sauron, and a little bit of the development of even Manwe a little bit in the Legendarium, and show how by the end of that development, Sauron is almost like a substitute little brother to Morgoth, as opposed to Manwe. So, in the very early days, of course, there was no Sauron. When Tolkien first started writing his First Age material that would later become what we know as the Silmarillion, there was just this character named Tevildo, Prince of Cats, and he was this was the character that Baron runs into and that Huon defeats, Huon the Hound. And, of course, in this typical style of Tolkien's really early stuff. It's a very fairy tale light-esque story because it's like this is the origin of the hatred of dogs and cats. I mean, this it's it's that kind of basic. Um and Tevildo doesn't really have a whole lot of background and he doesn't really have any much more role in the story other than he captures Baron who on defeats Tevildo. I mean, there's not a whole lot to it. Over time, this character turns into Thu the Sorcerer, and he becomes a little bit more important to the story, grows a little bit, and then over time, of course, he eventually becomes Sauron, because when he, and, and when he ultimately writes The Lord of the Rings and determines that Sauron was the necromancer, he ends up connecting all of this together. And somewhere in the same period, and continuing on, Sauron becomes much more important in the background of all the First Age. At first, his role was almost really limited to the Barad and Luthien story, but over time, more and more, he begins to take over some of the responsibilities for other things that happen in the First Age. Some of those being kind of detailed, I think, in the Morgoth's Ring volume of the History of Middle-Earth, and some of it turns into him being not just Morgoth's greatest servant and lieutenant, but kind of like his mad scientist in the background doing a lot of the actual, you know, dirt, dirty work of getting Morgoth's ideas, you know, put into practice. So there's a point at which Tolkien kind of is trying to solve the problem of when orcs arose versus when elves and men came on the scene. And in the process of doing that, he theorizes, well, maybe Sauron actually was kind of tasked with putting the idea of orcs into practice while Morgoth was off somewhere else. And I, I think it was during the period that he was in captivity in, in uh, Valinor. And so he ends up being, you know, the, 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 the chief operating officer, if you will, putting into practice Melkor's wild, crazy ideas that he doesn't have the time or the, the focus to really get done. And this kind of fits in with 
some of Morgoth's development because Tolkien writes in the same volume about how Melkor was this really hasty but creative type. It's like he would start things but wouldn't necessarily have enough focus or whatever to, to really finish it through and do that sort of thing. So at the same time, Morgoth is becoming a little bit more fleshed out in his character. Sauron is likewise becoming a little bit more fleshed out as kind of a response to that. Some of this also shows up in Sauron's development as a character in terms of who he is and what his primary traits are. What we find out about him ultimately, or what Tolkien concludes ultimately, is that he was one of the Maiar of the people of Aule. And Aule, of course, is the Vala associated with craftsmanship, creation, and, you know, rough, you know, really dealing with rough materials and building and creating and shaping things. So, Melkor and Aule are also stated to have a lot of the same gifts in common. Aule, next to Morgoth or Melkor, is kind of the most like Melkor in terms of who Melkor is. Although Melkor is stated to have a share in the gifts of all of his brethren, Aule is kind of the most like him, which it kind of explains why when he creates the dwarves, he's kind of slipping into the same kind of problem that Melkor has, which leads to his own fall. He He's a little bit too hasty. He wants to you know create things that are his own, but he doesn't have what he really needs to do that. It, only Eru Iluvatar can really create new things and give them life. Aule, unlike Melkor, repents and doesn't go further down that road. But Melkor, you know, he keeps going down that road. But it seems like Aule's people tend to have a lot of the same, you know, it, it, not evil tendencies, but dangerous tendencies. And we see this throughout the Legendarium. Anybody who's really into that thing of creating and being, you know, making things of their own tend to have downward fall type tendencies. Feanor is like this. He's not of the people of Aule, but I mean, he's the greatest craftsman of all the elves. Saruman is another Maya who belongs to Aule's people. Sauron is one. And so this idea of Aule's people and anybody that's really just kind of a creative type being likely to fall is a very big trend in Tolkien. And this works out for Sauron. But one thing that we learn about Sauron is that unlike Melkor, who very quickly went to the extreme of wanting to just kind of wreck everything and wanting everything to be his own, Sauron was more interested in order. He was more about... He, he at least pretended to himself that what he wanted was the good of Middle-earth. Melkor did this too in the early days, but that didn't last very long. Sauron lasted in that way a little longer, and we can see kind of the same thing with Saruman. When Saruman gives his speech to Gandalf, he's, you know, talking about knowledge, rule, and order, right? That's the things that he says are the really high goals that they're trying to achieve. Well, no, not really, Saruman. That's not really the goal they're trying to achieve. But it, you know, you could see why from a craftsman type perspective that would seem like a worthy goal because crafting things is by nature bringing order out of chaos. So Sauron has this same kind of impetus. He is trying to bring chaotic things into a more ordered state and 
for a long time, he sees himself doing that for the good of the world. Of course, the problem is he's doing that from a very kind of top-down command perspective and not really taking into account everybody else. He just has his own ideas of how he wants to do it. So Sauron, while he probably has a creative side, is a little bit less, you know, the raw creator as compelled, compared to Melkor or Morgoth, and more the practical application guy. Now, he does create things of his own, of course, the One Ring being the prime example. Uh, but even there, it's, you know, it's, he teaches the craft of ring making, and then he lets the elves make a bunch of rings with his help, and then he makes a ring. So it's kind of interesting how that works. But at the end of the day, his real goal is, you know, the pragmatic achievement of the goals that he wants and he joins Melkor because what he sees in Melkor, or Morgoth, is the power to achieve the things that he wants. That's another thing Tolkien tells us. Again, I think it's in the History of Middle-Earth, the Morgoth's Ring volume. So he's attracted to Melkor because Melkor is so powerful that he can just use that raw power to achieve his ends. And that's what draws him to his service. So Sauron has this idea of, here's how we could fix the world, and Melkor has the power to make that happen, so I'm going to go with him. Now, the interesting thing is, the flip side of this is that Manwe is also stated later on to be kind of in the same role. What Tolkien tells us when he tells us that Melkor is this really rash, creative, hasty type, is that the original plan, so to speak, was... Eru gave Melkor these kinds of tendencies to begin and to create and to, you know, kind of be the creative genius of, of the group, whereas Manwe, who is constantly, in the, in the very earliest days, described as his lesser or younger brother, is to finish, to complete, to perfect, to bring the things that Melkor starts to their, you know, more perfect ending. So, in a world where Melkor doesn't fall, Melkor would be the one who's kind of like a Steve Jobs or a, you know, one of these kind of really creative genius company heads who has these really great ideas but needs somebody like a, you know, like Walt Disney needs Roy Disney to kind of, you know, temper the, the, the raw creativity and make it a little more practical and keep it within the bounds of what's, you know, really feasible. And that seems to have been what Manwe's role was going to be. It's like, okay, you have this really cool idea. I see how we can run with that and make it really work. That's the way Tolkien describes how that was supposed to work in the end. And so, looking at these two things, we can see how Manwe and Sauron, after their development really reaches its peak have become oddly parallel characters. Because Manwe, who was supposed to be Melkor's kind of like chief operating officer type, who, you know, really puts the practical application and perfects what he does, now Sauron is doing kind of the same thing, but just in a twisted, evil way, because Melkor is no longer interested in a brotherly partnership so much as he is in tyrannical dictatorship. And so now he's just like, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. Here's the goal. You underling Sauron, go do it while I, you know, go do whatever else I have to do. 
And so Sauron becomes kind of a substitute Monway in Melkor's game plan, almost, in a sense. And it's interesting because Melkor, as he works his way toward becoming the Morgoth, he doesn't want partners. He doesn't want anything, you know, on his level, his equal, anything like that. And that's one of the reasons that he hates and fears the children of Eru, because even though they are much less powerful than himself, one of the things that Tolkien tells us is that they are still co-equal in the sense that they are independently created beings with their own spirits, or Fayar as he describes them, that, you know, are they receive their life from Eru or Iluvatar. And therefore, as with as to Iluvatar, Melkor and an elf and a man, they're all on the same level. They don't have any more authority versus each other. I mean it's it's all equal. And so what Melkor really wants is kind of what Ale was originally making but didn't want with the dwarves, which is things that he can make but are things that he can dominate that are subservient to him that don't really have an independent will of their own. Sauron is unfortunately in kind of the same vein because he's like, I don't care what anybody else wants. I know what's best for the world and I just want to achieve it. Manwe, who of course has the greater wisdom, recognizes that that's not how you're supposed to go about things. And in a better world, he would have been able to take Melkor's ideas and say, you know, okay, I see what we can do with this and how to make it work within the plan consistent with the idea of other beings like elves and dwarves and men that are co-equal. Once Melkor turns away from that path and becomes more evil, he no longer wants that, so he doesn't want things that are co-equal with him, he doesn't want things that he can't dominate, and so he cannot engage in partnership. That is no longer really an option for him. He wants it all to be under his control, and the thing that Tolkien tells us too is that ultimately when he reached kind of the peak of his evil, he was at the point of just wanting to literally wipe out everything, and even that wouldn't have made him happy because the unformed matter that would have still been in the universe would still be a thing other than himself that he did not make or control. And so it's like he had reached a point where he was just literally engaging in futility. But this is really interesting, too, because one of the interesting things that we learn about Manwe is that he is kind of associated not only with the wind and the air, which is kind of like his his domain as a Vala, but he's also associated with poetry. And the reason I find this interesting is because of the story Leaf by Niggle. Now, this seems like a totally random input here, because why would these two things be associated? But if you know anything about Tolkien, you know that he did a lot of poetry, and you know that he worked on his poetry much like Niggle worked on his tree. And Niggle worked on his tree endlessly, constantly trying to refine the leaves and all this. And if you look into the history of, say, the Lay of Baird and Luthien, the Lay of Lathian, really is what it's called, and the the story of the children of Hurin, the one that he did, in poetic form for that, any of the poems that Tolkien wrote, he painstakingly agonized over, much as he did with anything else in his story writing, for the most part. So, Manwe being associated with poetry, interestingly enough, gives us a similar kind of connection. This fits in with that idea of 
being the perfecter. You know, Melkor could come up with a really great poem that Monway could be like, okay, here's how we can change a few words here to keep the meter better, get the rhyme scheme right, you know, get, you know, more alliteration here, you know, really perfect that poem, right? And this seems like kind of a random connection to make, but you have to remember the creation of the world in the Silmarillion starts with a song. It's the music of the Ainur. And so everything creative in the Silmarillion is in some sense connected with music. Manwe is the character who seems to be the most in tune with making the music fit. Like sometimes we hear things like Ulmo has the deepest understanding of the music or, you know, things like that. But I think with Manwe being associated with poetry, maybe by this parallel to Sauron that we can kind of see in their later development, maybe what we can kind of infer is that Manwe, in fact, is the one who is not necessarily the most in tune with the music as it stands, but the one who is the kind of the, the main composer in that he's the one that can look at everybody's really great ideas and really put them together in a way that makes the symphony work best as a whole. And that, I think, maybe is what his role was intended to be. Not merely just a perfecter and completer of Melkor's ideas, but also just in general, his being in touch with, you know, poetry and music and things like this would have been a really big part of his role more generally. That he was really going to be more of, you know, not just Melkor's finisher, but the finisher of everything. Like, he was going to be, you know, when Varda comes up with ideas for light and stars, you know, he would be, okay, well, here's how you could improve on that idea. Or when Ale has an idea for, you know, gems, he's like, well, you know, maybe you could tweak it like this. And all of a sudden, Monway's character, even though Tolkien never explicitly says this, takes on a little bit more detail and a little bit more, you know, flesh on the bones. So it's really interesting how through the development of these characters and how they end up being weirdly parallel, we can actually learn a little bit more about them than maybe even Tolkien himself realized consciously. And I think that that's really interesting. And this is the kind of thing that you have realizations of whenever you're listening to two well-versed people talk about just a single topic for an hour in Tolkien. So, if you want to have really cool ideas happen like this, you should also go listen to Girl Next Gondor and Red Book talk about Melkor for an hour, and I'll link to their video in the description so you can do that. But, you know, if you can think of other things related to this particular topic, other ways in which this theory is either supported or not supported by things that are in the writings... You know, put those in the comments. It could be a really interesting conversation. This is not something that I have had time to, you know, read through the entirety of the history of Middle Earth to double check all my ideas because this, you know, the, their video came out just a, a week or so ago and I can't read that fast. Uh, but I think it at least is an idea worth really paying attention to. And so the more information we can bring to the topic, the better. So put those in the comments. If you enjoyed this video and 
really like the idea of exploring these kinds of ideas more, you know, give me a thumbs up, share the video around, subscribe here. I'm on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey. I've got podcast versions as well. You can also find me on Twitter at JRRTLore, where I drop occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions, and you can support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.